Hey everybody, welcome to Permanente Docs Chat. I'm your host, Alex McDonald. I practice family and sports medicine here in Fontana, California, as part of the Southern California Permanente Medical Group. Thank you all for joining and tuning in from where wherever you may be watching or listening. Um, I'm really excited to welcome our guest today. Dr. Uh, Tad Funahashi is an orthopedist and the Chief Innovations and Transformation Officer here at Southern California Permanente. Um, if you're listening live uh, or watching live on the Zoom, uh, please feel to drop, drop your questions in the Q&A. We'll try to get to as many of those as we can. So I'm excited for this talk. We're going to talk about all things innovation. Um, so we're going to jump right in. But but first, uh, Dr. Funahashi, I heard you just came back from a, a cool trip to Singapore. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's, I wish it was a pleasure trip, but uh, it's a very interesting history. Singapore is a uh, very intelligent and um, a well-organized country in Southeast Asia, as you all know, uh, that has about 5 million uh, in, in their population. Uh, they have traditionally been a fee-for-service uh, system with uh, the country being broken up into three fundamental healthcare clusters. Well, uh, fascinatingly, uh, last year, March, uh, their prime minister, then follow-up in May of last year, their minister of health, announced that they're converting from fee-for-service to decapitated system, essentially following the model of Kaiser Permanente. And in some ways, we had been advising them on the visioning of what their healthcare uh, might be in the future, and that they too face aging population, increased disease, increasing costs. And in some many ways, it was a great affirmation and confirmation of our model that a country like that would pick the uh, decapitated system uh, like ours to uh, provide care for their citizens. And so uh, we all went over on our vacation time, actually, to uh, help them to uh, begin that transition from fee-for-service decapitated. So it was a very interesting, engaging, and educational trip for us. That's that's incredible. Um, I'll, I'll put my I'll try not to put on my health policy hat because we could probably go down that road forever because that's one of my one of my passions, as many of you know too. So um, that's fan fantastic. Thanks for thanks for doing that trip and and uh, we'll excited to hear, to learn more as, as things progress. Well, let's let's tell everyone first. I guess we'll step back here. Tell everyone you know who who you are who you are and what you do. That's usually my my first question. I negated to ask that initially. I apologize. First of all, I, I'm, a, I'm a husband to my wife, Lenora, and uh, father to my kids, uh, Christina and Nicholas. Uh, but professionally, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I uh, continue to practice orthopedic surgery and have served in a variety of operational leadership roles there from chief to regional chief to chair of the national chiefs. Uh, but I've also had the privilege in parallel of doing some other administrative roles under both uh, I should say from uh, uh, Oliver Goldsmith to uh, Jeff Weiss, the adolescent, and most recently, Dr. David Off. In those roles, uh, I've served a variety of different roles, but currently uh, for both Dr. Ellison and now Dr. David Off serves as the Chief Innovation Officer for Kaiser Permanente in Southern California. That's great. Um, well, thanks for joining us today. You know, we heard that we hear the word innovation a lot, um, especially tied with healthcare. Um, and often we kind of go to technology, um, but that in my mind, I guess innovation doesn't necessarily always have to be technology. So for, for you, what does the word innovation mean? And, and does it always equate to technology or can we think of some, maybe some old school innovations, uh, uh, so to speak? Yeah, that's a really good question. So first of all, innovation is kind of the buzzword these days, but really, if you really think about it, it's just a survival tactic, right? So if your environment is changing, you have to be creative in the way you meet with your environment, whether it's, uh, you know, you're surviving on an island or surviving in business. And the key part of innovation is that oftentimes people think of innovation as 
an entity or something you should be doing anyways. But it's a much more disciplined process. Innovation is a creative way of solving a, a specific problem that you face, mm-hmm. right? And it may be um, it may be operational, it may be um, facility, it may be a variety of different things. And technology is just one potential solution to that problem. And one of the most important things when you really think about innovation is clearly defining what problem you're trying to solve, mm-hmm. understanding why that problem exists from a human factor, from process factors, from facilities, from technology. And then the key thing in innovation is then to create a solution that addresses that problem, addressing all of the whys mm-hmm. that problem exists. When you do that, then you begin to have solutions that are, are meaningful and impactful. And in our particular setting, we focus on innovations in care delivery. And certainly there has not been a shortage of innovations in healthcare from pharma to genomics to implants to devices. But if you think about innovations or creativity in the way we deliver care, uh, there has been remarkably little, right? If you think about that experience that patients have or experience we as clinicians have, it's pretty much looked the same for decades, if not longer. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are some substantive opportunities to leverage new developments, including technology, to substantively improve that experience for, for both parties. And that's the main area that we're focused on. Yeah, I, I, I love that. Innovation is about solving a specific problem. Remi- reminds me of my, actually, at a high school, my high school tech ed teacher, I, I remember this till the day I die. He said, life's all about problem solving. He was a little gruff. Um, but I think that's such a great uh, a great way to frame innovation about, around answering or solving a specific problem or, or question as well, too. So, well, let's t- take a step back. Tell us more about your role as the Chief Innovations and Transformation Officer. Um, what kind of cool projects have you worked on? Um, w- what does that role do? Where do you hope to continue to, to innovate within your role, I guess, uh, at KP as well? Yeah, one of the things that happens in an organization uh, like ours that has been so successful, especially over the course of the last decade or two, is that we begin to think that we've got to figure it out, right? And that, um, and I would say, uh, including our example of Singapore, people look at us as the model of care for the United States and, and across the across the world now. One of the most dangerous things to do, and we've seen many other companies do this, is that you think you got to figure it out. And if you continue just to do what you've been doing, that you'll continue to be successful. But you have to remember that the environment changes. And in fact, our environment in healthcare has dramatically morphed over the course of the last even few years with developments like Amazon Health and CVS and you name it. And if you feel like we can just sit back and do what we've always done, the environment and the consumers will move forward. So one of the key things um, in our role as innovation, uh, the studio, our our team, is to be looking at the marketplace, looking to make sure that where there are developments outside of Kaiser Permanente is that erode in our competitive advantage to leverage the core competencies that we have, right? To make sure that the core capabilities are used to an advantage in the competitive marketplace. And I think there are several examples we can cite, but I would say that one of the key things is that as opposed to many of the more recent convenient care that's being offered, right? Mm -hmm. We know that millennials and Gen Z prefer online care and virtual care, and and oftentimes don't really even have a relationship with their primary care doctors. Uh, Amazons and others have stepped in and said, hey, you know what, we'll offer you online, virtual, easy and convenient access. But that can oftentimes lead to disaggregation of care, Mm -hmm. Whereas in our system, 
we can offer all of that. We control every touch point, if you think about it. We're probably one of the few organizations in healthcare, from the insurance side to the administrative side to the clinical side to the, to the um, support. Every point of uh, contact is under our, our control. And so we can provide complete integrated care in a holistic manner in a way that really very few institutions can. And so we need to leverage that and provide the convenience that others are, are beginning to uh, sell as their primary uh, competency. Yeah, I, I completely agree. As a, as a family physician, also in practicing primary care, I think that that continuity is so important in knowing kind of what happened what happened last week and what happened three months ago uh, with those patients. I think people often under underrepresent how important that is as well too. So I'm I'm very passionate about that and and really proud to work at KP because of because of that result. And then you know the other comments you made me think about um, you know sort of resting on your laurels and thinking you got it all figured out and makes me think of a. A, a video store which is no longer with us but they're, they're they i can't say their name but it rhymes with blockbuster no i'm teasing we'll have to edit that part out so we have to pay them royalties um and the funny story uh, on that alex is that that the the other name netflix actually offered right to, to work with them right yep. and they said this is really ironic and blockbuster said that would be disruptive to our model yep yep <laughs> so, yeah i guess they were right that is funny. Um, well, tell us about, um, I want to hear specifically about the um, home-based cardiac rehabilitation program that that we have really innovated here at KP, which I think this is such a cool program with really better better participation, better access, really eliminating some of the barriers and the, and the equity issues when it comes to um, cardiac rehab. Can you tell us a little bit about that program and some of the results that you're seeing? Yeah, first of all, let me uh, give credit to the champion of this, Dr. Columbus Batiste, our current regional chief of cardiology. Uh, he saw a problem, and he saw a problem not only in Kaiser Permanente, but across the United States. Once people have a heart attack, the likelihood of having a secondary event is significant, and the likelihood that uh, you can have a second mortality event is significant. And yet, a intervention like cardiac rehab can dramatically reduce that likelihood uh, in the literature by 34%. But one, you have to be enrolled in it. And two, you have to complete that program. But the enrollment rates were less than 20% uh, for, for most people and less than 10% for certain ethnicities such as Blacks. Moreover, the completion rate was in the low 40%. So if you have few people per participating in it and few people completing it, the effectiveness of cardiac rehab, which is a life-saving intervention, is quite uh, limited. And so he asked exactly, as you asked earlier, he asked why that is. Why is it that more people are not enrolling in it? In fact, when he looked at the whys, uh, there were geographic distance issues, schedule issues. In fact, people who have heart attacks are so busy that they can't make it to a facility to get their rehabilitation done. There were um, also knowledge issues, right, and trust issues. So. If you, again, understand all the whys that problem existed, he said, let's build a solution. Or can you help us build a solution that, that eliminates and mitigates some of the reasons that why people can't participate? And if you think about what's available at home and what's typically needed in the facilities, uh, you need to monitor physiologic metrics. You need to send instructions. Uh, you need to measure what, what their uh, exercise is. And these days, technology allows you to do that in a very meaningful and um, impactful way. Yeah. So starting with a smartwatch, smartwatch can monitor your pulse. Can my, there you go. Can monitor the amount you you walk, 
monitor your exercise, and in fact, could even ask you questions in terms of exertion level, your symptoms, and whatnot. So together with an external large technology company, we built a, a, a custom app for that, that watch, which also links with what would be essentially the equivalent of a tricorder today, right? Right. Smartphone. Everybody has a smartphone in their hands. So why not leverage that technology? Because you take it everywhere uh, and you carry it with you no matter where you go. So if you can deliver care where people play, work, and live, healthcare doesn't happen in our offices, which we like to think as doctors, but health really happens where people live. Yep. And so let's deliver that into their homes. But we need to know what's going on. So let's provide a link between the smartwatch, the smartphone, and our case managers through a dashboard. So now the home-based cardiac rehab program allows us to leverage technology in a meaningful way that connects our case managers with the home-based cardiac rehab program. And what have been the results of it so far? It's, it's quite... Um, rewarding to see that the enrollment rate, which I said was 20, 10 to 20%, has mm -hmm. in our system increased to 60%, which is quite a landmark accomplishment, but Dr. Batiste isn't satisfied with that. He wants to get that up to 80, 90%. So we're working on methodologies to improve that. But the completion rate is well over 80%. So it's more than double what it used to be. Yep. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I mean, and you're now you're speaking my language, right? Uh, you know, uh, where people live, work and play is so much more important to their health than anything we do in our offices, or our hospitals, or our, our exam rooms too. Um, so there's a there's a question here in the chat, which and then also it ties in with my other question, which I was going to connect here about information and data. Now we're getting all this remote data, which is fantastic, but we can get data overload as physicians. And how do we how do we take that data and and approach it in a, in a way that's that's meaningful? So the question here was about you know continuous glucose monitors um, and and how can we utilize that to help you know control patients who have diabetes or help prevent people from progressing to diabetes um, without being completely overloaded? As a as a primary care doctor, I get hundreds of emails a day with all these pictures and graphs and things like that. How do we take that data and synthesize it in a way that's that's meaningful and that can actually help inform clinical decisions as opposed to sort of just having data just for the sake of data? Yeah, really, really good question. Let's take that one step at a time, Alex. Uh, so first of all, the, the body of literature we have in terms of, let's just take um, um, glucose levels or blood pressure is based on measurements that were traditionally taken in the office, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that set of data then allowed us to predict people's outcomes in terms of cardiovascular disease or, or um, uh, endocrinologic diseases. If we now increase the frequency of those measurements, in theory, you could get tighter control because as opposed to controlling it every few weeks, you could control it essentially every minute. Right. So we step one, we need to determine what that actually means from a health outcomes viewpoint, right? Does controlling it, it seems to make sense, but we actually don't have the literature or data to show that. So in fact, what does that data mean? If blood pressure is up high and down low and same thing with the sugars, right? what does that mean, right? So step one is to have the body of literature that demonstrates some, some advantages in doing that. It, it seems to make logical sense, but we need to prove that. Mm -hmm. Step two is when the amount of information exponentially goes up. And I think we're all seeing this, especially in primary care yep. in terms of the in-basket, right? I mean, it's if you were to add additional information coming into the in-basket, is it even handleable? And the answer is absolutely no. 
And so this is an area where uh, we need to either figure out operational processes using, using human power, or most likely using automation to do some filtering of that data to provide meaningful data. Because what the doctors need and clinicians need is not all of the data, but actionable right. data, right? And really we need to, uh, to be very cognizant that yes, the data flow may have increased, but let's make sure that the data that reaches the eyes, so to speak, of the clinician are the ones that are actionable. Right. We, I mean, we know uh, ambulatory blood pressure monitors are probably more accurate in terms of just patients' blood pressure versus when they're in the hospital or the, in the clinic and they're nervous about what terrible things we're going to say to them and their blood pressure goes up, right? Um, and But but again, when, when somebody emails me a picture of like 400 handwritten blood pressures of the past month, like what am I supposed to do with that? Um, it, it can be very overwhelming sometimes as well, too. Um, to some extent, we don't know what that means either, right? Because remember, exactly. the literature is based on those blood pressure that was taken in the office in perhaps that high stress environment, mm -hmm. right? So what does it mean if you get blood pressures every day, every every hour, every minute, yep. in terms of how tightly that needs to be controlled? So I think that that's an area that also needs further investigation. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. So I have um, a question here about um, uh, getting involved in the uh, innovations projects and the innovation studio specifically. So what would you tell people um, who are out there and want to get more involved and want to learn more um, regarding this, all the, the innovation and in the, in the projects we're doing here at KP? Yeah, that's a, such a great question. I, I, I love people that are interested in innovations because what that tells me is that they have creativity and they want to express their creativity in solving problems that they have. I would break it up into two fundamental categories of problems. One is a local problem, right? A problem that you need to solve that, that uh, may be well-suited for creativity in the local setting. Another is more of an enterprise level problem, meaning that problem exists across all the medical centers or all the departments across the enterprise. And in our innovation studio, uh, initially we were trying to solve both, trying to help local departments, local medical centers. But currently our strategy is to really look at scalable enterprise level problems. And scalability isn't a matter of taking a hammer and saying, everybody shall do it this way. It's actually a matter of knowing that that problem exists ubiquitously across the enterprise. So if you create a great solution for a problem that exists already, you don't need to tell people they have to do it. They're asking for it, right? So right. Like in the case of the home-based cardiac rehab program, Columbus' problem was not trying to convince people that they should do it, but rather asking them to wait until it was ready to be expanded, right? Because right. he knew exactly. that was the this problem. Right. Uh, and then number two, it should have two other, uh, uh, or three other really filters. Uh, the two, two first are, they should be impactful, meaning it touches a lot of lives. Two, it should be meaningful, meaning it saves lives, reduces admission, somehow improves the quality of the care. And then three, this goes without saying, so it's almost not a three, but it needs to be feasible. Not every problem has a feasible solution to it, right? So if it meets the criteria of scalability, meaningfulness, impact, and feasibility, uh, then we as a department will typically take that on to try to solve that, that problem for the enterprise. Yeah, that's great. I know at least here in Southern California, each area has an innovations committee um, that somebody can get involved with as well, too. So for for I, I would encourage people, if you're interested, find your local innovations champion um, and then and then start there. And, and that's a great way to just continue to get involved as well. I think some of our, our best ideas actually come from our, our new associates who are new to practice and, and maybe haven't 
their their thinking is a little more broad as well too. So, all right, next question. This is a question for me, actually. I never got questions. I feel so honored. So um, Dr. McDonald, as a family medicine uh, primary care physician, how, how does cardiac home uh, intervention help you empower you in your role as a, as a coordinator? So um, th- this is so important. This is a great question. I think, you know, as primary care, I think of us as the, as the hub of the wheel, right? There's all these different parts and you definitely need your, your cardiologist, you need your intensivist, you need all these specialists are very, very important, but my role as a primary care doctor is the hub of that wheel to help coordinate all those moving parts. Um, and, and being within KP really helps me to do that so efficiently because it's all, it's all, uh, in one single, uh, self-contained system. Um, if you can give the patient the tools, um, that's so much more valuable than just telling them, telling, telling them the t- what to do versus giving them the, the information and the data. So I find it extremely helpful when patients email me those blood pressure. First of all, they don't have to come in for an office visit because um, they can set, do it at home. And then it helps me say, hey, great job. Keep keep doing it. Or, well, you know, why don't we tweak this or do that? Or why don't you, you know, try to cut down salt in your diet too? So it really helps me to, again, engage patients where they are, as opposed to having them come into my office and waste a half a day and struggle with parking and, and whatnot too. So patients love it. And I think as physicians, we really see the value of it too also. Um, okay. Next question here. Uh, <laughs> this is kind of a bit tongue in cheek, but I, I want to know your thoughts anyway. Has has chat GPT uh, been integrated into healthcare solutions at all too? It's actually, I'm actually an avatar right now. I'm not a real person. I'm actually just a chat uh, GPT uh, function, just so you know. Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I would say at this point, no, although I guarantee your patients are using it. I have to tell you also a funny side story that there is a very esoteric diagnosis in orthopedics called triangular fibrocartilage injury. And, you know, one of my friends, chat GPT did it for me. And the answer that it gave was, I would say, better than probably most orthopedic surgeons can give in terms of exactly what that is. So I think there will be potential for use of artificial intelligence and chat GPT in general. Now, curation, accuracy, right? All of those things, quality, safety has to be monitored. So at this point, are there direct applications that we sponsor? And the answer to that is no, but are patients using it? Almost for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just hearing that makes me, makes my wrist hurt. No, I'm <laughs> um, so for those of you who don't know, triangular TFCC is a, a ligament in your wrist. Anyway, we can't, we go on. Um, Dr. Funashi, thank you so much for joining us and your expert expertise that we could probably go on and on, but we are unfortunately out of time today. So last question, uh, what makes you most proud to be a permanent day physician? Yeah. You know, in this uh, example of the Singapore that we talked about at the very beginning, uh, Kaiser allows you to practice the way you think without any other factors, right, that may influence your decision. So the purity of the practice that we get to have, looking after the patient's well-being, the quality, without encumbrances from other um, uh, incentives is mm-hmm. a wonderful place to be. Moreover, if you think about where Kaiser Permanente is, again, countries like Singapore are saying, we want to be like you, right? And wouldn't you rather be the model of care rather than those uh, that are uh, perhaps uh, not as so uh, identified to be that. Awesome. Yeah, I completely agree. So thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Really, really enjoyed the time with you.
The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and are not meant to represent the views of the Permanente Federation, the Permanente Medical Groups, or Kaiser Permanente.